0: Hi and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism, proxies and desectarianisation podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Mayburn, and today I'm joined by Ibrahim Frehad. Ibrahim is an international conflict resolution professor at the Doha Institute for Graduate Studies. He's written extensively on the Middle East, he's uh, he's produced a great amount of work for a range of international outlets, he's published a book with Yale University Press entitled Unfinished Revolutions, Yemen, Libya and Tunisia. Indonesia after the Arab Spring which is wonderful and well worth a read but more more recently he has just published a book with Edinburgh University Press titled Iran and Saudi Arabia taming a chaotic conflict and having read the book I can wholeheartedly recommend it and I'm really looking forward to talking to Ibrahim today so thank you so much for joining us Ibrahim.
1: Thank you Simon thank you for your great work. Oh you're very
0: kind uh, Ibrahim, I normally start the, the podcast with a question of what prompted your, your interest in, in politics and academia, so, uh, so can you elaborate a bit on that please? I guess being from the region points you in a particular direction anyway.
1: Thank you again. Uh, I started, actually, my uh, academic career, I started as uh, an active in politics, actually, before I got into academia. And that was back in the 90s, and exactly uh, after the signing of the Oslo Accord between the Palestinians and the Israelis. Right. And I, and I was politically active at the time, during the 90s, uh, in this process. But uh, four years later, after the signing of Oslo, and particularly in 1999, I realized that the peace process between the Palestinians and the Israelis was failing, and it wasn't working, and uh, it wasn't the right setup. It wasn't uh, progressing, what you know, the way it should. It wasn't making the achievements. So uh, then I decided to quit at the time politics, uh, being active in politics, and go to academia and try to find an answer to that question on conflict resolution, you know, and I became interested in this subject in particular. So in 1999, I went to the United States and I joined the PhD program at George Mason University, specializing in my PhD in conflict resolution. And that's what I've been doing since that time academically, when I started my academic career. Sure. Uh, And uh, then after completing my PhD in 2006, I continued teaching and working more on the ground in conflict resolution in the region.
0: Amazing. So you had that first-hand experience of, of conflict resolution and peace building, which which pulled you into academia after the frustrations of, of the Oslo process.
1: That that's absolutely right. Especially that one year after uh, I uh, left uh, the Palestine. Uh, the second intifada started, so right. uh, it just confirmed my uh, frustration about things were not working. And if I may share a story, actually, Please. when I when I joined the, the the PhD program at George Mason, in my very first class uh, meeting in uh, George Mason with my with the, my classmates in the PhD program. Uh, it was the Camp David talks happening between uh, Yasser Arafat and the Hudu in Camp David, right. which was a few kilometers from George Mason University, by the way. Yeah. It was in Maryland. Uh, so when I introduced myself that I'm coming from Palestine and uh, about the, uh, being active there in the conflict uh, uh, in, in the region, uh, so my classmates started laughing. He said, why are you studying conflict resolution now? They're meeting uh, in Camp David, Barak, and Arafat to resolve it. So what will you be doing after you finish your PhD in conflict resolution? There will be no conflicts that you can work uh, on after you complete your PhD in conflict resolution. But sadly, but it's just uh I finished and I found more conflicts after 2006, after I finished my PhD. So, unfortunately, and then, you know, we got the wave of the Arab Spring uh, revolutions, uh, which actually, uh, you know, took the region to a whole different level of conflict and conflict resolution.
0: Well, before we get to that different level, what was your, your thesis on?
1: Uh, my thesis was a uh, very interesting. Question is on, on about uh, uh, early warning systems in conflict zones. Okay, like when to uh, the ripeness of conflicts for uh, to move to a, a new phase of uh, violence and war on violence, which is also and uh, was to a certain level uh, uh, also in line with uh, with the, my expertise there of when to expect that the conflict has become ripe for violence.
0: Fascinating. And that was was conceptually driven, but with some empirical case studies?
1: Yeah, that's correct. Actually, I did two case studies uh, comparing uh, the case of Kosovo. Mm. Actually, that's where I did my field research uh, and Palestine. So in Kosovo, because there was also a similar experience when in 1999, Slobodan Milosevic came to power and... uh, started his Dragonian measures against, uh, you know, in the uh, Kosovo province against the Albanians, uh, and Ibrahim Rogova led a nonviolent uh, resistance uh, movement against uh, the measures of Slobodan Milosevic, Slobodan uh, uh, and lasted for um, eight years uh, until in 1997 we started to see more uh, the creation of the Kosovo Liberation Army, and uh, more, you know, the non-violent approach of Ibrahim Rogova was failing, and being replaced by uh, a militant revolution also in Kosovo until led in 1999 to the NATO intervention. And again, uh, you know, violence broke out as well there. And, uh, you know, similar to same timing also uh, with the Palestine case. So I was comparing the two cases that's and cool. how we can tell that uh, violence or the conflict in Kosovo was ripe mm-hmm. for uh, a revolution and, and, and a war. Uh, same timing happening in Palestine also that we had a peace process, nonviolent resistance. Uh, but also in 2000, also we had the second intifada in Palestine. So I was comparing the two cases and to learn more about... Uh, uh, being early warned about uh, the ripeness uh, for violence, uh, not the ripeness for resolution, as yeah. uh, you know, the literature of uh, Bill Zartman, you know, uh, explains about the, ri- the ripeness for resolution, but it's the other ripeness that I called it. The right for violence, so, uh, not the right for uh, Could you give us a solution. couple
0: of those those early warning signs then? I mean, just just briefly, Ibrahim, given that I want to talk to you more about your recent book, but I, I'm really curious about this and the extent to which we can maybe learn some lessons from those historical case studies.
1: Thank you. Actually, uh, uh, I focused on my uh, thesis at the time back in... Uh, in my PhD program, Uh, more on the subjective factor. And I warned against uh, solely relying on the objective data of uh, concluding that this uh, conflict has become ripe for violence. So not treating people as numbers, looking at the, for example, the unemployment rates, and this is, uh, that now it becomes ripe for violence, you know, this conflict. uh, it's there is the, the subjective factor, the perception mm. of the uh, of the people living the conflict and how they make sense of these numbers, how they make sense of unemployment, how they make sense of uh, economic data and uh, other factors so, I emphasized is the importance of, uh, of the subjective factors and in particular the perception, how the people are making sense of the numbers and of the conflict environment around them. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I uh, realized through my research that and I did also some uh, uh, quantitative data on the subject and uh, I concluded of how important it is is to look at the, at, the per- at perception in the two cases that violence was ripe in the minds and in the perception of the people in the two cases yeah. before we saw it actually breaking out on the on the ground that's fascinating uh, and and that's how you know. I, in, in my analysis, I looked at the statements made by the locals in the two cases yeah. that preceded the uh, violence in both countries, and uh, all the data were confirming that you know it's it becomes ripe in the minds and the perception of the people, not necessarily ripe only on in the on the numbers, because there are cases around the world where the numbers in terms of economic data are much worse, but we don't see violence necessarily translating uh, or the conflict translating the violence. It's how you emphasize, you know, the values of respect, of dignity, of human, human dignity, justice. Uh, These are the, you know, where the, uh, you know, the the ripeness happens and when people are frustrated enough. To respond in every possible way, uh, you know, available for them, in order to move to the next level.
0: Thank you. That's that's really interesting, and I, I think you can see some of those themes coming out in the, and obviously the Arab uprisings a, a decade Absolutely. or so later. So yeah, you've certainly got something of interest there in terms of its the ways in which we can understand protest violence and, and tensions between different actors.
1: Absolutely, and by the way, Simon, is actually what happened in the Arab uh, Spring confirmed these conclusions? Because we saw the Arab Spring starting actually in Tunisia, yeah, right, and Tunisia was not, and it's still not, the poorest Arab country or the lowest unemployment uh, rates. Of course, so there, you know, it started there, right, and Tunisia was known of uh, being uh, the, the Tunisian people, you know, highly educated, right? So it's not about, because the, empl- the unemployment rate, for example, in Tunisia was about 14%, 13% when mm. the Tunisian revolution started, while uh, in other places, for example, in Yemen was 36%, sure. right? But, but we saw the, the, uh, the Arab Spring, the revolution starting in Tunisia, But not in Yemen, not in other places also where we had higher unemployment rates. So again, which confirms the Arab Spring came later in 2011 to confirm the understanding that it's really in the minds of the people. And uh, when you press those buttons of justice and dignity and, uh, and oppression and humiliation and how they respond to these values, and that's when... Uh, ripeness happens is in the minds of the people.
0: Fantastic. We must move on Ibrahim and I, yeah. I wonder where did your interest in, in Saudi Arabia and Iran come from given that you've spent all this time focusing on the sort of the domestic issues, the, the subjectivity, the, the economic cultural factors that affect people. Where did the interest in, in these two states that have long engaged in a, a fractious relationship come from?
1: Very interesting uh, question. Uh, and actually, the quest, this research question on Iran and Saudi Arabia, emerged from from uh, my previous research work that you mentioned also earlier, is about the unfinished revolutions. Uh, in Yemen, Libya, and Tunisia. So when I started working on this research subject, responding to the developments of the Arab Spring, uh, I did uh, over 200 interviews in Yemen, Libya, and Tunisia while working on this, uh, on that research and trying to put my book together, Unfinished Evolutions. Then to realize that uh, most of these conflicts that we're seeing in the region Actually referring to one central point, which is about the Iran-Saudi, Iran-Gulf, Iran-Arab, the framing, frame it the way you want because that's part of the challenge we have. Uh, That it refers or it links to it in some way. So most of the conflicts are happening in the entire Middle East and North Africa are linked in one way or another to this conflict of Iran and the region. So I discovered it during while doing my research. While I am working, why why I'm working? Why am I working on the regional conflicts? Why I don't just go to the source? Sure. So just go to the to that central point. You know that's reflecting itself in many conflicts in the region, whether it's through proxies in Yemen and Syria and in several other places. Uh, so that's what I decided. Uh, when I finished my uh, previous book on unfinished revolutions in the region, uh, I decided that what was clear uh, to me is to go next to the uh, to the cent- to the center right. Right, of uh, these conflicts. and that's when I decided uh, to go to the uh, to, to research this uh, conflict more. And of course, you know, being uh, uh, living in, in the Gulf, that also helped that I am on the ground. Sure. Uh, yeah. I'm not studying the conflict remotely. I was based uh, in uh, in Qatar, working with the Brookings Institution and teaching at Georgetown University at the time. Uh, so this opportunity, when I moved from Washington D.C. before I came to Qatar, uh, when I was living there. Allowed me to see a lot more about the conflict um, in the region, uh, in the Gulf region, between Iran and the region. And I decided to study it more, being and, you know, making use of my uh, being in in the middle of the conflict and uh, interacting with the people from there. So that's why it became very clear to me is when I finished my previous uh, research about yeah. that book is to move to this second And that's how I started okay. working on it in 2015 uh, uh, in, in a structured way as a research project. Fantastic. In 2015 and now in 2020, I have a book.
0: book, it's wonderful. Thank you. So for people not familiar with the, the rivalry between the two states and the complexity of tensions between Riyadh and Tehran, can you just elaborate a bit on how to how to understand and characterize relations between the two states please?
1: Wow, this is this is a very very difficult question, honestly. And that's <laughs> probably was one reason why I started this research is to try to understand Right, what is the conflict is about? Yeah, And you can tell actually from the title of the book, right, which is I decided to call it uh, taming a chaotic conflict. Yes. Right, a chaotic conflict and the reason why I call this that this conflict started, you know, Practically uh, back in 1979, so as some uh, you know parties tried to uh, refer to, with the arrival of the Iranian Revolution, the Islamic Revolution, and raising the slogan of the exporting the revolution, uh, which was interpreted in the region and the Gulf region as regime change, you know, in those countries. Yeah. But then it continued and all of that until 2003 with the American invasion of Iraq and change. Changing the power structures and, and all of that. So, uh, the, which is so interesting is that uh, people are still struggling with what is the conflict is really about. Right? Now, many, as in the case of President Obama, uh, you know, refer to the easy, short way an oversimplification of the conflict is to tell you that this is an ancient conflict, it's sectarian mm-hmm. conflict, it's about Sunni Shia, it's about... Uh, intractable, primordial, you know, conflicts is about that existed, you know, in in ancient times and there's nothing we can change about it, which is, again, the oversimplification and uh, reductionism and uh, all of that and, uh, you know, try to explain it in these terms, which is, in my view, that I found in this research that it's totally wrong. It's not, this is not a sectarian conflict. That's not the way... It started because of sectarianism, Sunni Shia. Uh, it started for several other reasons. However, sectarianism remains a central dimension, you know, in the study, you know, in the understanding of this conflict and the way that we study it. That while I argue in the book, while it's not a major or it's not the original cause of this conflict, however, sectarianism has been conveniently be, been uh, a tool for both parties actually, yeah. to use to advance their uh, political agendas and as a result sectarianism has become a cause of further escalation of the conflict sure. and reinforcing of destructive dynamics that exist in this conflict so that's on a on a second level uh, or a second layer sectarianism becomes uh, a cause, but a cause for further uh, escalation and reinforcement of destructive dynamics of the conflict, rather than being originally as a cause of this rivalry and as a cause of this conflict. Uh, Simon, after now uh, about 40 years of talking about this rivalry, uh, again, back to my uh, calling it a chaotic conflict, the issues are still clear, even in the minds of the parties themselves. Yeah. So while the Iranians see it as uh, a security-based conflict, that it's under threat, the Saudis see it not only security, but also a sectarian conflict. Uh, so the issues are not clear. It's about also geopolitics and leadership and security. Uh, so this mix right, of all issues together and being... The issues are being defined differently, not only by scholars like us and analysts, but also by the parties themselves that they're fighting this conflict, that they they have not come to terms about really the real issues of of the conflict. And we have experienced this firsthand in the track two workshops that we have been doing for the past six, seven years. Uh, on this conflict and when uh, you know we uh, uh, face the, the participants uh, from Iran and from the Gulf about tell us what are the issues, what do you want? what are the issues you know of this conflict And we see that it's emerging it's, lead, it's triggering huge debates, a huge controversy between the parties, not agreeing about what the issues or what their issues of the conflict is. This is not a very clear conflict like the conflict between India and Pakistan yeah. over Kashmir or about the Palestinians Israelis, about independence and uh, land and, and all that. It's, it's a conflict, again, which also uh, speaks to my research background and perceptions and understanding and minds so it's mostly also about the way it exists in the minds of the people and, and all of that. So the issues are not clear, the causes are not clear. Not only this, but also, Simon, the parties are not also are not clear either hmm. about who's yeah. fighting this conflict. Sure. Right? There, the conflict is being fought by praxis to a large extent. And we are still struggling, I remember, when the war started in Yemen, we spent like two three years talking about whether the houthis are linked to iran or not yeah and now right, in the, late, in the last workshop that we were having on the on the subject to what extent you know the houthis are right are affected or are driven by iranian policies and to what extent they, they can separate from Uh, The Iranian agenda. And to what extent, you know, this uh, 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 non-state actors like the Houthis, uh, their relationship with the patron states, right, with Iran. So this is still a huge debate about whether Iranians are impacting the Houthis or actually the other way around Right. Mm. The Houthis are also impacting the Iranian policies. So this still also adding, when we start talking about the parties, it's still very also un- and unclear about who the parties and to what extent, you know, this is a proxy driven by the centers of Tehran and Riyadh or by the, the proxies on the ground in Syria and in Lebanon and in Yemen and in Iraq and all that. So still there is also a vagueness over these issues, or even the dynamics of the conflict, so and how they're not clear about, uh, you know, the sanctions or uh, fighting over, you know, in what means. So that's why I found that it's probably uh, to describe it as uh, a chaotic conflict because,
0: mm.
1: uh, unfortunately, even is the uh, the uh, the approach to resolution. Uh, and the communications, there is no communications between the parties. Uh, we know back uh, with the execution of Nimr and Nimmer uh, in Saudi Arabia and uh, the attacks of the, the attack on the Saudi consulate back in in, uh, in Tehran, uh, that led to uh, Saudi cutting official diplomatic ties with, with Iran. So again, even the means of communications and conflict resolution are no longer there, uh, which add uh, which adds actually to chaos, uh, yeah. and to the chaotic nature of this conflict.
0: It strikes me that everywhere you turn when you look at this, this rivalry, this conflict, there's ambiguity, there's complexity, there are debates about what's going on. I, the other thing that I found really interesting, and it's something that I've been trying to grapple with myself, is not only is the rivalry playing out across time and space, but it's also being shaped by time and space. So, like you said in in the Yemeni case, not only is the rivalry between Tehran and Riyadh shaping Yemeni politics, but it's also being shaped by Yemeni politics. And if that's the case, then how do you go about addressing conflict resolution when you have a multi-directional, multi-causal Set of ambiguous problems that can't even been agreed upon as problems.
1: Thank you. This is a great question because really addresses the design of uh, my book and the way to re- the way I decided to research this book. So the book uh, composes of three major parts. The first part is about the analysis of the issues. You know, the whole issue of sectarianism, security, leadership, geopolitics, and all of that, and trying to explain what everyone everyone means. But then the second major part, which responds to your question, is about in order to resolve this conflict, right, or other conflicts, we need to manage it first. We need to manage it well first. So will-managed conflicts are, in my argument in the book, are easier to resolve. So we cannot jump, or it's the wrong approach, the way I argue in the book, is to jump into resolution right away because we need to manage it first. We need to manage it well and to regulate it, to establish some rules and regulations uh, and some to put into management, uh, to put this conflict into management Uh, which will reduce the chaotic nature of the conflict because it becomes more of an organized conflict and follows certain rules, which I also looked in this case uh, uh, while doing this research on the uh, American-Soviet Cold War and how they also benefited and how they managed uh, this conflict. Because The Cold War was well managed between uh, the rivalries between Moscow and Washington.
0: Ibrahim, just sorry to interrupt. Just tell us what you mean by well managed, please.
1: By managed, that it, I'm going to explain this. Okay, sure, sorry. it, It has, yeah, it has, it follows certain regulations. There are communications, there are talks, there are clear understanding about the conflict and the issues. So I proposed in that second part of the book uh, is about the the, the uh, second chapter is all about the management uh, that, for example, uh, we need to establish a hotline between the two parties. Is that mm-hmm. the parties that are able to communicate and that they're able to uh, get into the communications in order to prevent escalation and to prevent. Um, to prevent war that, uh, that could emerge as a result of the unintended consequences. For example, and I cite a story here, that when the, during the early days of the war in Yemen, uh, there was an Iranian plane that uh, uh, decided to go to Sana'a to deliver humanitarian assistance, the way the Iranians put it, and then the Saudis uh, wanted to prevent that. So they sent two uh, fighter jets that wanted to prevent the Iranian plane from landing in Sanaa, and they come so close into proximity that even the pilots could make eye contacts. Wow! Yeah. Right. Of how close they have become uh, during that time. So you can imagine, if by accident, that the Saudis did not mean it, right? That uh, a crash, you know, would happen between the two, and then uh, the uh, Iranian plane down there in Sanaa. So the Iranians would have to respond, mm-hmm. right, to that level, and then what the Saudis would respond, and we could lead to, uh, and this could lead without a decision, but you know, as something developing and in, leading into a war between the two countries. Uh, so for example, so for sim- similar situations, we need to have, my argument, for example, a hotline that could, the parties that link to the highest levels uh, on, on the two parties, right, to uh, the president and the, uh, the, the king, in order to be able to pick up the phone and verify, right? Yeah, you know, sure. it's that, that doesn't mean that you're accepting the other party or agreeing with their demands or agreeing with their issues or agreeing what they're doing, but at least to have a method of verification. That could establish or that could help in managing the conflict well. Not only this, but also we saw during the Cold War uh, between the U.S. and uh, the Soviets uh, uh, visits on heads of states level happening. Richard Nixon, uh, Khrushchev, and, and so forth. So uh, we don't see that happening in the case of uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia, Iran and the Gulf. Right? So it's not happening, which again adds to the uh, chaos and the complexity of managing the conflict. Also, as a matter of management, uh, like technical committees at, uh, meetings and uh, experts meeting on both sides, aside from politics, that right? again doesn't mean that they're agreeing, but continue to talk about this and produce some technical solutions to uh, challenges like security and other challenges. So that all contributes, and of course, agreeing on ways to respond, that all contributes to the management of this conflict. That could help us. And moving to the third part of the book, which is the major part uh, or the biggest part is about then talking about resolutions, right? Yeah. And with resolutions that, again, that management would help us with the resolution that uh, with resolution, we talk about different levels of, uh, of of work in order to resolve it. Historically, this conflict has been driven by track one work. Yes. So it's heads of states. It's government to government, which is important, essential, Uh, in order to contain, manage, and resolve this conflict. But Simon, that's not enough. That's not the way to resolve conflicts. Governments only do not solve conflicts. It has, because they don't live peace or war. It's the people. It's the other levels of conflict resolution that I try to emphasize in this book is working on track 2 what we call track 2 conflict resolution and grassroots uh, as well when we talk about you know grassroots and establishing the foundation for peace in the gulf the infrastructure for peace in the gulf mm-hmm. which is again not and here i emphasize not a substitute to government to track 1 uh, work but but as creating the foundation for peace and between Iran and the region and the Gulf. Uh, for example, we do not have exchange programs, academic or academic exchange programs, student exchange or faculty exchange between Iran and the Gulf. Like how many Iranian students are studying in Saudi Arabia, or studying in the Gulf, or yeah. vice versa. Sure. Or how many right, research uh, or think tanks or research centers in the Gulf that are studying Iran, or, uh, uh, in, uh, or how many people speak Persian, or how many Iranians speak Arabic language. So this foundation, when we look at the numbers here and the existing, it's very miserable, unfortunately right, where people are uh, uh, not communicating, there is no foundation for resolution and for peace between, uh, you know, in the Gulf region. And that's why I emphasize that there is a serious need in order to invest in this area, in education, in media, uh, in uh, several other sectors of the, uh, you know, in the society. For example, in the media, those are in the media on both sides are in control of this uh, of this conflict. Is only reporting the bad coverage about the other side. No one reports about the good coverage of that you know of the other side. So the dynamics are driving the conflict on this level, on the grassroots level, uh, and the larger sector in the uh, in the in the two uh, sides is all. Dynamics of escalation, not dynamics of de-escalation. And that's what needs to change, and that's where we start to work on that level. And the other level that I talk about where peace needs to be, is about second uh, level or the track to diplomacy, that almost non-existent. Right? I now, during while doing this research, and as part of my research methods uh, uh, for this uh, for this research, uh, we've been and I've been involved in many of these initiatives of the Track Two uh, initiatives, Track Two workshops, where you bring the middle-level leadership on both sides, like academics, uh, opinion leaders, uh, even uh, social. Uh, you know, uh, tribal leaders. Uh, you know, people with social status that have respect and impact with the, within their own societies and within their own governments, and meeting and discussing and generating ideas about solution and about de-escalation hmm. uh, of this conflict. So, uh, while these workshops and the uh, you know the design and the structure of these workshops is extremely helpful because. We realized that politicians, when they talk about the conflict, they talk to the media and they talk to their own constituencies. They're not talking to the other side. So they're driven what's shaping their statements and position is by the media and their own constituencies. So in this workshop, track two workshops that we've been doing for the past six, seven years, Uh, The parties are, the media is not involved. The workshops are done on a a Chatham House rule where it provides, there is no media involved, it provides the context, the right context, and it provides uh, the assurances to talk and not being mentioned uh, and to think creatively, to think innovatively about solution and de-escalation. Uh, of this conflict, and you don't have to worry about how this is going to be perceived by uh, back in your country and back in your constituency, and also you're given the chance to talk to the other side, hmm. right? It's not talking to your own self, you're talking to the other side. So this track to workshop that we, uh, we were doing uh, have been very educating of course, on both sides yeah. about the conflict and how you know, allowing for the proper environment to generate ideas about de-escalation and resolution, which was not the So, unfortunately, again, uh, the, I have to uh, admit that the work that we've done in this level is still very modest, uh, and a lot needs to be more to be done, a lot more need, that needs to be done. Uh, so this track to diplomacy is not given the right chance and it's not realizing its potential about what it could contribute to education and de-escalation and containment uh, of the conflict, that the way it could actually do, which is, again, understanding of this conflict is linked basically to the centralization of this conflict. This conflict even, is highly centralized right, on both sides. Yeah. So, again, all restricted, whether it's an escalation or resolution, in track one. Everything is in track one. This needs to change. In order to resolve this conflict, you can't resolve it only on cha- on track one. And that's why, one reason, why track one has failed over the past 40 years to bring an end to this, to this conflict. A long-term solution will have to be by also by aiding, not substituting, by supporting uh, track one, by investing on other levels on track two and grassroots work. And that's how you establish a foundation for resolution that I explain uh, and elaborate about in the book.
0: Fantastic. Ibrahim, we've taken up so much of your time, but it's been absolutely fascinating. I've loved hearing you talk about it it's clear how passionate about this topic you are and about peace building more generally. I would strongly urge people to get hold of a copy of the book. It's available from all good bookstores and also online uh, from the Edinburgh University Press website. It truly is wonderful and important because it sets out these, these opportunities for moving forward and the, the possible ways in which tensions can be, can be reduced. But, Ibrahim, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you.
1: Thank you, Simon. Thank you for your great work and your great project. You're doing excellent work and contributing to better understanding of these conflicts. So, please keep up the great work and well done. Thank you. You're very kind. So, thank you again,
0: Ibrahim. Thank you to everyone for listening. And as always, until next time.